Okay. Um, tonight is about psychology and about Freud. You should know that Swami wrote this chapter many times, and at one early stage of it, he he gets an inspiration with a lot of energy and writes it out quickly, and then works a long time to make it better. And uh, he sent it to us a few times, um, and we actually rejected it a couple of times, which is sort of odd because that doesn't usually happen. But it was just too. Um, what, you would, what would you say? It just didn't take into account how important psychology is to people. It just wasn't. It, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't going to win people. He sort of knew that. That's why he asked us to look at it because he knew it was just a little too over the top. I said, "Everything you said is true, sir, but I don't think people will like it. Maybe you can find another way to say it." So he worked a long time. So if you were still offended, all I can say is you should have seen it in earlier versions. <laughs> Okay, so, and I was actually curious. One person has already spoken to me. I wondered how many of you had, did anyone have trouble with this chapter because of his attitude towards psychology or anything? I know you did. Did anyone else? I was just curious what we're working with. Okay. I didn't necessarily agree with what you said, but I didn't have trouble with it. Okay. Um, I, I'm sort of wanting to try to, again, remind you of what Swami's doing in this book because it's very important to understand um, this is the kind of chapter where it's very easy to sort of pick it apart and say, well, I've been to lots of psychiatrists or psychologists and they never treated me like this, they never did it like this, and you sort of get lost on the details. Freud was the, Freud was the father of psychology. He created the movement. Swami himself says it's an, it's, it's an early science, and he said you can't hold Columbus responsible for not describing California which was really a, a well-put way. He, Columbus discovered America. He didn't necessarily chart the whole country and make all the maps. But nonetheless, um, the one who started it set a certain tone for it. And again, what Swami's working with is these un, unquestioned cultural assumptions that have become part of the fabric of the way we think that are so inculcated in us that we don't even realize that they're arbitrary assumptions and that they're even very recent assumptions. And so by, by talking about Freud and many of the things that he um, set in motion, Swamiji is trying to make us aware of a lot of assumptions that we have that we're, we're not conscious of, that are really ruling our lives. And, and he has no respect uh, for sacred cows. He just really wants to say what's really true. And as I mentioned to you last week, you know, there are people who won't uh, the, the, the chains won't take this book because they don't think Swami's qualified to comment on these subjects. But he's eminently qualified to comment on them because self-realization and Master's teachings make all of this stuff look like, like tinker toys. And we have this great sort of reverence for all these thinkers. And they were, as Swami himself admits freely, they were geniuses, many of them. But they weren't saints. And they didn't really understand all of life. They just had um, some very clever and insightful things to say at the time, and they probably said them better and more interestingly, more creatively than any of us, certainly than I could, so it's not like I want to denigrate their work, but we're comparing it all to real truth, you know, to, to self-realization and where we could really go, and there's a great deal of difference between someone doing a fairly good job of analyzing a piece of the mud puddle and someone else telling you really how to get out altogether. And Freud especially, or the whole movement that he set in motion, really 
profoundly, deeply, totally influences the way we think about, especially in California, the, the, way, the way we think about how we're going to get better. And, and a great deal of the time on the spiritual path, there's a lot of things on the spiritual path that are just extremely um, contradictory to the essential premises he set in motion. You know, wh- wh- what is our true nature and where does it really start and how do you really get better? Uh, I, I mean, it's classically defined by this woman who came to Ananda at a certain point and had the opportunity for some karmic reason. She was very new, but she got swept up quite quite quickly into all the activities around Swamiji, and she was spending a lot of time with him. I don't know if it was because of the job she was doing or what, I don't remember. But after a while, she decided that she really didn't want to spend that much time in Swami's company, because when she was with him, she forgot about her problems. And if she didn't concentrate on solving on her problems, how would she ever get out of them? I mean, it was just like that's that's the essence of it, isn't it? Because the 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 thought form is that unless you quote, and this is a discussion we often have, deal with your shadow side, how can you ever sincerely be a healthy person? But it's 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 a a, a platitude that people say. And then everybody, because you, it's the right thing to say, you all, everyone nods their heads and says yes. But it's not really true. Yes, it's true. You have to deal with your shadow side. You have to transcend everything that limits you. I mean, if you're going to talk about shadow side like that, but the entire question is how do you do it? And, you know, which way do you concentrate in order to overcome it? And, of course, it's, it's balanced. Even in this book, Swami speaks of uh, one of the issues that he, he really speaks about in Freud or traditional psychology is that there isn't a sufficient goal. We just don't know really where we're going. And then he, he proposes himself, because he's not really trying to throw out the whole concept, let's have directional therapy. Let's say we're going somewhere. Let's start something new that says there's a real goal in mind, and that's what we're heading for, because he talks at great length about how... And we have to really appreciate this about Freud's whole system... And, and understand how it influences us, that Freud was dealing with really mentally ill people. I mean, like really mentally ill people. I, I can't remember clearly because I've only read a little bit. But, you know, madhouse kind of people who, who were just off in other realities and had totally lost the ability to function in anything resembling a normal manner. And his fascination was with the world of madness, And so many of his theories um, were all based on people who who found themselves under so much pressure that they just went away. They just slipped out. Swamiji, it's interesting. Swamiji commented once, because a a friend of mine went into a, a very abnormal mental state, and I commented that I felt it was a it was a spiritual crisis that they were really in. And Swami made the statement that madness, um, you know, certifiable madness, is a, a stage of spiritual growth. He said, not that, it, not, not that I'm saying that crazy people are actually saints, like some people try to say, but he said that in your progress as a soul, there comes a point where you get a glimpse of what's actually being asked of you. And it's just so much 
that you can't um, reject it, nor can you embrace it. So you just go sideways for a while. You just go completely mad, and then you don't have to deal with it. You don't have to be worldly, you don't have to be spiritual, you just get to be nothing. And you, get to, and, and you do that, you know, like many karmic patterns, things like that are, become habits for a while. Suicide is a habit, madness is a habit. You kind of like try it out. It usually takes more than one lifetime. And usually takes more than one lifetime before. You know, you'll find, you know, you'll have an inclination. People will have an inclination to think in terms of having a nervous breakdown or think in terms of ending their lives even when you're not going to do it. And other people will never think of such things. I knew one woman, we just sort of whenever things would get tough, she would always, with great intensity, talk about throwing herself off the edge of the building. And it just wasn't something that would occur to most people I knew, but um, her nature was such that it was clear that that sort of had, had been how she dealt with things a lot. She'd just given up. And she wasn't going to do that this time, but it was always the first thing she thought of as a solution. <laughs> and in the same way... Um, people go mad. They just check out. Now, Freud's interest was in people who'd really gone crazy, and some of his ideas are less, less, um, more understandable if you think about someone who's really gone crazy, somebody who found themselves pressed between two forces so strongly, you know, their own um, impulses rising up and the suppressive influence coming down, and just causing the cord to snap in the middle. And of course, at that point, what you would need to do is you would need to sort of find out what your reality is, identify that which is pressing on you, and then have the courage to go forward to, to no longer allow yourself to be so repressed. And that's how Swami, describing um, what Freud was saying, that's the, that's the essence of it. But there's very interesting points that Swami um, puts, uh, talks about here, he talks about how every one of these thinkers that we have described, up to and including Freud, all see all of life in terms of these conflicting forces competing with each other. And, and just even that whole mindset of everything competing with itself and even thinking of us as human beings in some kind of irreconcilable conflict with ourselves and a great deal of, of our thinking, whether it's um, consciously articulated like that or not, often sets us at war with ourself. Or we, even when we get on the spiritual path, we often sometimes think of the spiritual path in terms of it's, it's fighting with other aspects of ourselves and we see it in terms of what we can't have. And it, it just, it, it, it's all a very negative mindset. And, and one of the themes that Swami's naturally talking about in this book is he's talking about cooperative communities. So he's talking about how in every aspect of our lives we want to work in a cooperative way with the forces that we are. So Swami starts by just with with Freud's basic uh, assumption that there is this thing called the id. I mean, I know about as much about Freud as there is in this chapter, so I'm not really going to be able to talk like I know more than that. But anybody who's been alive at all in the last few decades has heard people talk about the id. And I've learned more about what the id actually was here. I don't know where the word id came from, but nonetheless, there it is. But, he, but Swami says some very interesting things because he, Freud makes the emphasis that this sort of animalistic desire, 
for self-gratification and to have for yourself without regard for anyone is a natural and inevitable and forceful part of ourselves. But uh, is it really? Swami just makes the very... He starts with the first assumption because Freud put a lot of sexual implications into that aspect of ourselves. And Swami points out that only man is sexually aberrant. It's extremely rare for animals to be sexually aberrant, and it's extremely rare for animals to be sexually obsessed. So this thing that he describes as our animal nature is actually very much a human quality. It's not at all animalistic. It's animalistic in the sense that it's degrading to human nature. And we instinctively, we call it animalistic because really, intuitively, we know that that's not what we are. But he sort of sets up that this like, well, like we're all having to deal with this sort of wild animal that, gosh, if we only had the freedom, we'd all just be able to be as uninhibitedly um, sensual and self-aggrandizing as possible, and then we'd all be so much happier. But, alas, you know, there's this other force that comes in. Now, you can see that's a very um, distasteful and rather gross concept of human life, isn't it? But a great deal of what we see going on around us is really just pandering to that sort of level, like that's really where we're really at. And I know a lot of people, especially you know, late teens, early 20s, when you sort of first get your wings and get to sort of live a little bit, almost everyone, although not everyone, fortunately, but many young people, you know, will start drinking and start, perhaps start being promiscuous the way life is these days, or used to be at least, trying, experimenting with drugs, just sort of basically following out that idea that I would be much happier if I were able to just follow through on all these impulses. And many people will make a philosophy of the freedom to just be yourself, and yourself is considered to be very physical, very sensual, and, and that, that you're much better off that way. And there's still kind of like a, a subconscious undercurrent um, that, that, that pictures freedom a lot that way. But you can see that's entirely antithetical, not merely to the teachings of self-realization, but it's actually antithetical to our actual experience of life. And, and this is where Swami makes such a strong point that the... Um, the, 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 that life itself is self-regulating because certain experiences bring certain results. And the image that he brings out again and again is that there's basically two directions consciousness can go. It can either go into expansion or it can go into contractiveness. And the more contracted it is, the more unhappy we are. And the more expansive it is, the happier we are. And that's really where freedom lies is when we, we learn to direct our energy in an expansive direction. But Freud tells us that our true nature is completely self-serving and really extremely contractive because the Swami, Swamiji put it so interestingly that you know, consciousness can expand indefinitely unless it's encased in a tight bubble of selfishness. And this image of, that Freud puts forward is that everybody's really fundamentally selfish and that that's our true nature, but society forces us to, to curb that in. And so what you see around us a lot is this kind of um, claim of freedom because people are now having the courage to just be as selfish and as self-serving as they want to be. 
and you see it running you know through all the scandals through all the companies that we see there's an epidemic of uh, cheating and among students and ac- academics and there's a, a moral disintegration and and there's a great deal of um, counseling that goes on that really says you know you're not going to be happy unless you really get your needs met unless you really get what you want and just so much pushing all really based whether people think about it or not on this underlying idea that that's our true reality and if we repress it too much then we're really going to suffer now if you're dealing with mad people who are really insane people who who don't have any bearings at all you sort of have to start somewhere and so that's what he was well, that's where uh, Freud was starting with. He was starting with people who were insane, and he was trying to figure out, you know, what part of this is really you? Where can you function somewhat freely? But our interest, and the majority of people's interest, is not a question of insanity. It's a question of functioning, but searching for happiness, real happiness that's lasting and that just isn't the, uh, the, the freedom of uh, falling apart. There was a, a billboard that we used to see on the way to Ananda, uh, from or on the way to San Francisco from Ananda, and it was a billboard for Las Vegas, and it was pictures of uh, this man and this woman, and they just looked deranged is the only word for it. And it was a huge picture of these two deranged people, and it said, "Let yourself go in Las Vegas," and and you just thought, well, like who would be attracted to such a picture? But of course, many people are attracted to such a picture because they're very persuaded that if they let themselves go and become practically deranged, then they're, being, then they're being true and natural. Now, we're not necessarily there, but there's a tremendous amount of, of advice, serious advice that's given to people that really is that direction. Because it's not understood that the, you just are never happy when you're contracted. I mean, look at the justification for divorce, for leaving children, for... Just so many things are justified on the basis, well, you know, you've got to be free. You've got to do what you feel. You can't allow yourself to be repressed. Um, and yes, there is a certain amount of truth in it, but as a, a, a fundamental, the, the degree to which it has infiltrated our culture is just leading people terribly astray. I've, uh, last week I was talking about marriage counseling, which over the years I've done a great deal of, and there's been a lot of, um, uh, you know, emphasis given to women about the need to stand up for themselves and to assert themselves and uh, all the different things that are there. And and not and all of it's true. It's not like I, I really am against it. But I mean, I have I've had so many times women are just sort of telling me the strategy that they're using with in their relationships and. I tell them it's a marvelous strategy for getting divorced. You know, it's just a really, it'll, it will really work. You will really be your own person, and you will also be alone. You know, because it's not genuinely expansive. It's really actually a commitment um, to, to what he calls the id. It's an, a commitment to the thought that the more I can just live in the smallest part of myself and have that kind of freedom, then the more powerful I'll be. Now, sometimes, however, and this is where it gets very complicated, it's like if you really are 
afraid of yourself and you really are repressed and a little bit insane that way, then you, you do have to first at least have the courage to be selfish before you can be genuinely transcending. But as a, a, a definition of humanity, it's enormously destructive. And, and that's what we're caught in a lot right now. People don't even know where to begin. And, and as a result of the sort of emphasis on all of this uh, dark side, this is where what Swami starts talking about is this trying to solve problems by focusing on problems. And there's, it's very interesting through the years at Ananda. There's been like virtually no times that I can think of where Swami's ever let, let us all get together and talk about what's bothering us. You know, and, and you would think in a community that once in a while you would have to do that. He just uh, never lets us do it. And even if there's a group and somebody wants to start talking about what's bothering them, just the most, what everybody does these days, which is they sit around and they talk about what's, what the troubles are. It's just, Swami well, I mean, never operates that way. If there's, on occasion there have been uh, uh, difficulties among people that have reached such proportions that Swami's had to bring people together you know, to try to sort through it. So there have been times when people will say, you know, I got my feelings hurt or something like that. But Swami will give it about, I can't sort of make my fingers narrow enough, you know. He'll give it about just enough for us all to realize that we're in trouble. And then he'll say, well, it doesn't matter what's happened. What are we going to do about it now? You know, it's always like, where do we go from here? Not where have we been and how have we suffered, but where do we go from here? Now let me let me sort of work with this for a minute. You can't be afraid of anything that you feel. If it frightens you to know that you're angry, if it frightens you to know that you're vengeful, if you're trying to play play the role of a devotee or play the role of a disciple and say, well, disciples don't get angry, disciples are not jealous, you know, disciples are always positive, devotees uh, don't feel left out, and so therefore I don't feel left out. If, if you are doing exactly what Freud talks about, which is if you're taking your values from the outside and trying to impose them upon yourself, uh, then that is a recipe for, in one way or another, for you to go a little crazy, because that really won't work. But if you simply know how you feel, and, and that, that is the genuine role of a psychological um, counseling. And I've often recommended it and I often support it because there'll be people, the way a friend of mine put it perfectly, is they don't know what's actually causing their pain. And if you don't know where your suffering is coming from, and there was a, a couple that are no, long since no longer a couple, but they were a perfect example. In this case, it was, it was he who just had so many complexes, so many levels of his own self that he had laid one upon the other, that it was, he was no longer a simple person. And when she would do sometimes very ordinary things, or worse still, anything even slightly thoughtless, which, believe it or not, happens, <laughs> then his suffering would be so enormous because her action would enter into what I, many of you have heard me talk about this, and what I call the geological strata in which that level of pain exists. She would touch it, he would immediately go all the way back, however far back it went, you know, and sometimes it was a very deep vein, 
And he would go way back into this vein of suffering that in his mind was catalyzed by her action. So her action would produce in him this enormous misery, which would then produce in him this great resentment of her action. Because he didn't understand where his pain was coming from. Because all of his capacity to experience it had been repressed. He just was never allowed because of all the little things that we talk about you know, to, to ever be able to know any of that. Now sometimes we get so confused by our own reactions that we have to spend a little bit of time introspecting to try to understand why on earth would I react like this. But merely to, to name something and define it does not in any way free you from it. And that's the great illusion of that kind of counseling, is that you can define it all over the place, but you won't be free of it until you raise to a higher vibration. And this is where Swami talks about directional um, counseling. If you raise to a higher vibration, very simple matter, if you resent someone for abusing you, and maybe they genuinely abused you, maybe it's not a projection of your own mind that they did it, maybe they really did it. You were unfortunate enough to be raised by people or have people in your life who treated you very badly. Um, how do you forgive them? Generally you forgive them when your own consciousness goes to the level where you see them in a broader perspective. Isn't that so? And if we think of every situation in our lives in which we've been able to let go of some uh, level of emotion like that, it's always been because all of a sudden I see it differently. You know, I sort of see... My, my sibling as a separate person, I see my parent as a separate person or my own child as a separate person and I, my, my level of awareness has risen to the point where I'm no longer locked into that particular thought form. So what, what the preoccupation with what's wrong with us does is it keeps us on the level of what's wrong with us. Whereas if, as Swami is suggesting here, instead of worrying about what's blocking our energy, we simply do that which causes our energy to flow, then very often we overcome the obstacles anyway. And, and it's part of that is just the, the very picture of the fact that one is contractive and one is expansive. And he, he uses as an example that, you know, he talks about this uh, community he visited that was really intently exploring its shadow side. He didn't actually, in this book, say the whole story there. What happened was about two weeks after he left, someone committed suicide there. I mean, Swami was very concerned about what was going on in that place, and it was people of goodwill. But their thought was, you know, we've just got to go in here and deal with all this darkness because of the thought of the idea that that's our fundamental nature. But really, we all have all those... um, levels of resistance, but we can expand beyond them so that they don't dominate our consciousness so much. Or we can expand into a higher level of awareness. We, th- though it's been dark for thousands of years, as soon as we turn on the light, there's light. And Swamiji talks in here about the years of Ananda as a laboratory for watching what works and what doesn't work in human nature. And he he just makes a quick reference because he's not really talking about Ananda, but he's often talked about this through the years. He said, all through the years, the people who've come to our community, he, he sort of uses Ananda as a very good example because he says, 
It's just this very small laboratory in which, in which human nature plays itself out in a, in a sort of little controlled setting. And you get to see different people act out different choices and you kind of get to see what the fruit of each of those different choices are. And one of the very common things, especially in the early years of Ananda, was people who would say, I'll get involved and I'll help the community just as soon as I get my own life together. But I can't really, you know, take this job or do this service until I get my own self together, until I get my family together, until I get my house together. And invariably, and it really is invariably true, in three decades of this, such people never get their lives together. Because it's like when you're on the level of trying to get your life together, you don't have the energy to get your life together. I don't know how else to say it. But when you get into a flow of energy where you let your energy get bigger, it's like that bigger energy that's flowing through you just straightens out your life as you go along. I mean, this is the very simple premise of karma yoga in uh, the spiritual path which is that you serve others and then you're blessed by that which flows through you. And those people who come and are really, they may have all the same difficulties, but if they solve their difficulties by expanding and focusing on a bigger reality and not sort of sitting around thinking, well, how am I going to deal with this about me and how am I going to deal with that about me and how am I going to solve this problem and how am I going to solve that problem and I really need to work out this before I can do that, but just says, who cares? It's just too boring. You know, like, who's really interested? And that's, that's what happens to your consciousness after a while. I often joke with people that we never really get any better. We just stop caring. And you just stop caring. And as soon as you stop caring, you get interested in a bigger world. And as soon as you get interested in a bigger world, it just doesn't matter as much. You know, a great deal of being depressed and being unhappy and being this and being that is just sitting there thinking about it. And, and you just sit there and think about it. It becomes your whole reality. And, and so much of psychology is focused. I mean, not good, not good counseling. But, but the premise of it still is that I've got to deal with all of this. Even this, you must deal with your shadow side. I don't even know what people mean by that. Never really put out enough energy to find out because I've just never been able to relate to it enough. But so often in our community, people will get upset. They don't do it so much anymore because Ananda is so strongly established. You know, now it's like, well, we're having the reverse problem in our schools because our schools are still so new. Education for Life and the school that we've been running, we've been running it here for 10 years, or even a little more than that. But still, we haven't yet created the authoritative mystique that Waldorf has created for their system or Montessori has created for theirs, where nobody dares question you know, it's just, this is the way it's done, and everybody just accepts that this is the way it's done. Well, our system is just as, our education for life system is, is totally clear. We know exactly what we're doing, but our parents don't always know what we're doing, and so they tend to think that they can um, challenge what we're doing more and question it and try to take it in another direction, and we're always, we're in a long cycle of, of educating them. Parent education is one of our highest priorities in our school. Not, it's not because people don't mean well, it's just they don't understand. They don't realize how comprehensive the system is, and so they will just come in in the middle and say, let's do that, let's do this. Well, in the earlier years of Ananda, before the 
uh, magnetism was as well established as it is now before the self-definition was as clear as it is now, there was a lot more controversy. And, and people would argue more about the, our, quote, our way of doing things. And one of the things, and even still people do argue with it, is just they just can't understand this encouragement to be positive. It's very frustrating to them. And, and in fact, when people get disenchanted, often they'll talk about it as a form of brainwashing or as a, a, an unwillingness to look at life as it really is or as a refusal to deal with the shadow side. And, and, and that's brought on with a lot of force because it's a little bit hard to see at the beginning how it's going to solve itself unless you relate to it. But part of it is based on what you really think a human being is and where you really think our happiness and fulfillment comes from. If we genuinely believe that our true nature is really one with the infinite and if we can just draw our consciousness up and get into that uh, and receive that power, then we, we realize that we don't ever really have to sort of organize the illusion. We just have to escape from the illusion by the actual receiving of divine consciousness. Sometimes the issue gets confused because people will misuse that truth and they will actually be um, attempting to avoid um, self-understanding or, or attempting to avoid facing themselves and they'll, they'll try to go from, they'll try to hide out in the light. It's the only thing I can think of to say. Except it doesn't work. You know, because sooner or later what happens when you enter the light is that you find out who you are. But sometimes people's um, misdirected energy actually works out fine in the end. Because if they're sincere in their desire to come into divine awareness, then sooner or later whatever they have to face will also come and they'll have to face it. You just, you, you can't cheat. You can't really sort of get out of the situation. Sooner or later it comes to the fore. Women, all of us in the years that you all have been here, you've seen many cases of it, of people just, and in fact really just getting themselves to the point where they're strong enough to face something they weren't strong enough to face before. And sometimes it looks like a collapse, but it isn't really. It's just the natural progression of working out your karma. But in that sense, Swamiji also talks about how it's not merely about psychology. It's the whole way that we approach life as to whether we approach life from being problem-oriented or solution-oriented. And it's, it's, a very, um, it's a very important, just utterly fundamental Ananda attitude. And, and it's, it's a, again, it's a tricky one to really catch because sometimes we just think we're being practical. Sometimes we just think we're being real, realistic. Once, once we had a meeting with Swamiji, and it was now quite a few years ago, and all of us who were present will never forget the meeting because Swami described it afterwards as one of the best meetings we ever had. And the meeting was, we were talking about planning a temple. And we just started talking about what a temple could look like. And we just let our imaginations run so free. We built this most beautiful temple. We ended up, we, we, in our minds, we built a, like a dome that was made out of crystals and then we were putting gemstones in it. And, you know, it was like that level of, of talking about what we were going to do. It was just that we really visualized something that was really extraordinarily beautiful and all worked together 
to think about how we could really make it beautiful. It's, it was a very unusual meeting. I've almost never been in one like that at Ananda anywhere else. And he did comment about how good it was. Because it was one of the first times nobody said, oh, but that's not practical. Right? <laughs> nobody just took the energy and immediately tried to cut it off at a certain point, but just let it run as freely as it could run. Swami often talks with great um, respect of Walt Disney. And uh, recently I read a biography that actually turned out to be the same one that Swami had read, which gave him was a lot of his understanding of how Walt Disney worked and what Walt Disney created. But he was a very unusual person in his abilities, and he had, he had many rules about the way he worked. He was very much of a... He was very much in charge of everything that he did. And, you know, Walt Disney created a whole reality. Disneyland now reflects the popular culture. Now Disneyland takes what's popular, has brought it in. You go there, you're seeing the popular culture. But when Disney did it, he created a culture. It didn't exist, and he just saw it, and he created this. And in this biography, it's very funny because... He's showing his daughter one of his new films, and his daughter says, Daddy, it's so corny. And he says, and what's wrong with corny? (laughs) Corny is good. And in fact, corny is good because it was sweet. It was innocent. It was enjoyable. You know, now the culture just won't put up with it as much, although such things are still very popular. But, But one of the things that Walt Disney did is he never allowed any of the financial people to come to his creative meetings. And he even told a story about, you know, sort of when he was getting a little on in years and he wasn't quite in total control of things, a couple of the accountants showed up at one of the planning meetings. And he just got very, you know, intently, absolutely, what are you doing here? Go back over to your side of the company. Because he never wanted there to be any kind of sense of limitation when he was really expanding things. And his, uh, somebody was telling him that something, so-and-so, that it could be done he was, he was describing how it could be done in terms of what the different options cost. And Disney was extremely stern with him and said, I don't want to hear how much it costs. I want to hear how it should be done. You know, Just tell me how it should be done, and that's how we'll do it. And everything that he did, he did um, with the sense of the creative best of it, instead of starting first with some sense of what the limitations were and then letting his creativity be, be defined by that. And, of course, he, it was very amusing in this book because uh, he, he was in, enormously in debt for most of his business life until after Disneyland was well underway. And Disneyland itself was you know, owned by the bank for many, many years, you know, for millions of dollars. I don't remember the details. And his brother was the financial man, and he was the creative man. And his brother you know, held it together financially, and there was a certain amount of tension between them because Walt Disney was not willing to um, be limited by money. But he, but he always expected his brother to pick up the pieces. <laughs> and there was one conversation where the brother called him in and said, you know, I think we're $25 million in debt. And he explained it to Walt Disney, expecting him to feel really um, upset about that. And Walt Disney began to laugh and laugh, and he said to his brother, he said, remember we used to have to work so hard to borrow 200 and now they've loaned us $25 million? They must think a lot of what we're doing. <laughs> and suddenly it just turned around, and it, according to the biography, and the two brothers sat and reminisced for a while and then just went on. And of course nothing changed. 
And at another point, someone said to Walt Disney, you must be a very wealthy man. And he says, well, I owe many millions of dollars, so I suppose I am. You know, because only a rich man could have debts like that. No one else would. But he never let any of that define the way he functioned. Now, there's a quality about Swami Kriyananda that all of us have seen over the years, which is he always can find an answer. And, and it's not even like the answers he'll come, the solutions he'll come to. I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll place a person who's standing right in front of you in the job you were trying to solve, but somehow other people can't think of those solutions. At least it's been true over the years. I don't want to say it's still true. But you would just come to Swamiji and he would always have an answer. And he, he explains it to us in very simple words. He said, I always have an answer because I believe there's an answer. Because my orientation is not, oh, what a problem. My orientation is, here is the solution. Because there's always a solution. That Life is not really competing elements that, 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 that one of them gets eaten and one of them doesn't get eaten. You know, that, that thought form, and these are very important things, this sense that everything's competing with everything else always leads us to diminishing realities. That, that we have, we have, we're going to lose something. Something's going to lose. Something's going to win. And there's always this tension of who will get eaten and who will eat. You know, that sort of energy. And that, that things butt heads and compete with each other and then fall apart. But the way that superconsciousness works, the highest level of reality that we're trying to work with, is all these different elements resolve. Because even all this sense of separation that could even create the illusion of two forces hitting themselves is because we're not seeing it from the highest level where it's one force to begin with. And, and when we talk about superconsciousness and superconscious living, we always talk about there's always a super, the, the nature of superconsciousness is there's always a solution because all the separate elements resolve. But we won't even get the inspiration for those ideas unless we put ourselves in tune with it enough to receive it. And Swami then again talks at great length you know, what is our consciousness anyway? Where does our consciousness come from? And he speaks emphatically about one of the limits of the whole Freudian approach or psychology in general is it doesn't have a clear sense of what we really are and where consciousness comes from. I mean, I think one of the obstacles too is it doesn't include reincarnation, but that's something else. It tries to find causes in too small a framework. And often you're just twisting everything to try to make it true because it started before you can remember. And that also sort of gives you a sense of limitation. My God, am I not only going to have to psychoanalyze this set of parents, but the one before and the one before and the one before and the one before and the one before. Sometimes when I'm talking to parents who are, uh, I'm going to actually use the board, unduly upset about their children, you know, just really concerned about something specifically that they may have done to their children or what may be happening. This is my favorite picture. I'll draw an arc like this. And I'll say, you know, this is the trajectory of a soul, uh, of a soul's long evolution, not just one lifetime. And in that evolution, you know, you have many, many lifetimes. Lots and 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 lots of lifetimes. And in every lifetime, you also have a period of time in which you live with your parents, which is about that big. <laughs> you know, in which they influence you. And so here we are, and then maybe there's you, like right here. 
<laughs> and you try to think whether you are actually determining the fate of the child that you're raising or whether maybe something else may be involved in what's happening here, right? And, and also when you think like this, you can see the folly of spending so much time on each of the little tiny bits of what's going on here. And this is again where Swami, when he's talking about you know, all the scientists who receive the, their different ideas and Darwin and Wallace and Leonardo da Vinci and uh, Einstein and everyone who has any real um, capacity to bring something forward, they don't, just, they don't squeeze it out of their brains. They, they tune in to this greater power. He makes it so beautifully about how Leonardo had the capacity to individualize the, the inspiration he was feeling in a uniquely um, uh, beautiful and interesting and creative and uh, extraordinary sort of way. But it was the, f- the flow of energy that was available to everyone. It was the same. He, he, had, he was just a thousand-watt bulb, and everybody else plugged into the wall was you know a 25 or a 30 or something like that. But it was all the same energy that's flowing through. And also when we think in terms like that, it helps us to understand um, what it is that we need to tune into. I was trying to go somewhere else with that. Let me think for a moment where it was. Um, Oh, because once you get into that flow of solutions, then the problems, again, are not important. But as long as we're thinking about all those um, problem consciousnesses, they just always lead one to another. I remember one of the most extreme examples was in the satsang we were in, Swamiji was talking about cooperative communities. He was actually talking about this book and how wonderful they were. And someone actually raised their hand and said, well, what about the problem of the communities beginning to compete with each other, becoming competitive and sort of... And it was just like, you know, Swami just sort of looked at the person and later said, what's wrong with that man? <laughs> he said, well, he's very problem conscious, sir. You know, it's just like it was, it's an orientation he has that whenever a situation is raised, he always thinks immediately about what might go wrong with it. You know? And, and when such things happen, of course, things do go wrong. I remember I gave a seminar in a... Uh, I had a brief, very, very brief, short career as a corporate trainer. It was not my lifestyle, but I did it briefly. And uh, I was working with a group of people, and I was trying to get them to realize that if you create positive magnetism, you're more likely to find success than if you focus on negativity. And I asked them to uh, make a list of their strengths. And it was a very interesting thing because uh, many of them couldn't do it. They, t- they started out to make a list of their strengths, and then when we were sharing, they were actually making a list of their weaknesses. I mean, it just like slipped over because they just couldn't understand how... Um, um, there was more of a context to it, but they couldn't understand how they could get rid of their weaknesses without enumerating them and focusing in on them. Now, this, this is an important point. I wanted, this is what I wanted to talk about. It. Swami makes the comment that this going, going with your strengths is how Master called it. And one of the many secrets of why Ananda works is because Swamiji has trained us all to go with our strengths. And Swamiji has trained the people who guide others in this community to help people go with their strengths. Um, because 
if you can get into a positive magnetic flow of energy, then that energy has its own wisdom and will help you to understand what to do next. If your energy is blocked and you can't do anything, um, and there's nothing flowing through you, then there's no fresh understanding, there's no enthusiasm, there's no fulfillment. Master actually even went so far as to say, if a test is more than you can do and you know you're going to fail, then the better part of wisdom is to run away from it. It's just very interesting. Because you don't ever want to get into the, into the flow of energy where you're defining yourself as a failure or as a loser. Because if you can define yourself as being capable of overcoming, of facing and doing, then that mindset itself gives you the strength um, to gradually be able to face and overcome more. If you face things that are too much for you on a continuous basis, then you get it in your mind that you can't do anything. Swamiji's genius as a leader is to never emphasize to people their failures, no matter what they've done. It's always, okay, what can we do now to go forward? And And even if you have failed at what you've done, he'll find some way for you to do something positive next. You know, even if it's a very small step, that's part of the reasons why when he gets us together, he doesn't like us to talk about all the things that have gone wrong. He wants us only to talk about how we're going to go forward from this point. What positive things are we going to do now? Because the only way to eradicate the negative energy is with positive energy. You don't eradicate it merely by focusing on it. In fact, as he put it, you feed it sometimes. Our, our attraction to it, our fascination with it gives it energy. But what I was wanting to say is, and in the direction of the community, in, in the guidance of a whole community, it's very tempting for leaders of communities or leaders of groups to feel that the way to move the group forward is to focus on those who are not cooperating or not producing and try to get them to do something. But Swami has completely reversed that, that the way to really make an endeavor successful is to work with those whose energy is flowing, who are in tune with it, who do have positive capacities, and just let them lead it. Because one of two things will happen. Either the weaker links will get drawn into the positive magnetism, or else the weaker links will get spun out, and they won't really be part of your situation anyway. Whereas if you focus on the negative energy, it never has the capacity to go anywhere. It just, even if you bring it from negative to normal, it it doesn't take you anywhere. And... um, One of the things that's really destroying our country and our educational system and many aspects of our culture right now is that we have an obsession with trying to move the bottom and and doing very little to magnetize the top. And in fact, we've we've started trying to equalize down. That's the, uh, the, the craziness that's going on in our public school system is in order to create equality, we're trying to pull the top down. And in so much of our school programs are all oriented to trying to, to, to bring the bottom from nothing to one. And it's not that we don't want to bring the bottom from nothing to one, but the best way to bring the bottom up is to create a, a great deal of magnetism going forward. And that whole orientation, again, is just all part of this problem consciousness that to a certain extent really started with this whole psychological way of, of looking at things that we need to focus on our problems in order to deal with them instead of focusing on what we can do in a dynamically positive way. And uh, you see again how interwoven all this goes and how so much of the confusion of our culture comes from um, a lot of these basic assumptions. Now, I would like to take a break. 
Well, that's exactly right, and that's why that's why Swami, you know, excoriates Freud here, and and just tells you know this is just not healthy stuff. This business of the id, the unconscious, animalistic side of ourselves that must be honored, that society is trying to repress, and you know that our conscience is just the conflict between what other people tell us to do and what our natural animalistic nature tells us to do. I mean, those ideas are really permeating our culture because there's just no understanding. And he, he talks about it in here that self-sacrifice is where joy comes from. And, and really, when you really follow what you know is right, and, it's, and he also emphasizes, and it's profoundly important to him, something... Would someone please... Um, somebody just told me today that Linda Lockhart is putting a lot of these classes accessible through the internet now I don't know how she's doing that because when we looked into that it seemed like a complicated project I mean it it required too much space anyway somebody can find out what she's doing she's doing this from a CC I can't figure out why I think what she's actually doing is putting them on a CD I'm not sure anyway that's that's beside the point it's not um, but what what we were saying Oh, yes, about the fact that you really can leave it behind. That you really can leave it behind. Swamiji talked about when he had a cold, when he was coming across the Golden Gate Bridge once, when he was working, teaching in the area, and he felt himself starting to get a cold. And he could feel the thought form essentially saying that you, now that I'm here, you have to relate to me. And, and he was just beginning to buy into the thought that now that the cold was there, he had to relate to it. When he realized he didn't have to relate to it, and he just turned, and I think he said, he said out loud, get out, get out! And it just got out. Because it was just telling him that, it, that uh, that's, what the, that's what Maya does. Maya tells you, you have to relate to it. I, uh, you know, something has happened to you, now you must grieve. You must go through the grieving process. And uh, it's... This was, I, I so admire Jacqueline. I mean, you all know her husband died like five weeks ago, six weeks ago. And she said, she just used it perfectly. She said, it's a great temptation to be sad. And she said, and the temptation keeps rising within me, the imp- impulse to be sad, and I see it like a temptation, you know, like, uh, like, like the desire to have too much ice cream that I know is not going to be good for me at all, but I think it's going to be pleasurable if I do it. And then sometimes the temptation overtakes her, and then she's, she has to eat the ice cream. It's just going to happen. And then, But after it's over, she realizes that I don't have to do this. But so much of our culture tells us you have to do it. And even I was reading today a place called Ananda, and Swami talks about when he was teaching in here in the uh, mid-60s, and he, w- he went up to this uh, retreat up in Santa Cruz. He used to go there. It was called Bridge Mountain. And they had a lot of interactive things. And he was, as he said, he was just trying to get in tune with what was going on. And he was introduced to um, uh, self-actualization sort of things. And he talked about how they made watercolors to express their inner feelings. And they threw mud at the wall to express their inner aggressions and things like that. And he just... Um, he just said he didn't have any. You know, he just didn't know. <laughs> and they told him that, well, maybe if he threw enough mud, he would discover them. It's sort of like, you must have them, because the definition is that you must have them. Instead of just saying, no, I don't. Or if I do, I just don't choose to relate to them. I choose to relate to the light. It, it's Again, it's, it's like 
this is sort of a funny thought. I was walking with uh, Sheila and I, and of course Sheila's, uh, I always say black, African-American, and we were having a discussion about race and race prejudice and various people she's known in her life, and she was talking about someone that she knew whose uh, father was black and her mother was white, and... Uh, Somehow we were talking about the woman's identification with being a black person or relating to being a black person. And I said, well, she's just as much white as she is black. Why doesn't she just identify with being a white person? Or why doesn't she just live in the world as if she were a white person? She just stared at me for a little while until I realized that if you're, one parent is black and one is white, the chances are really, really good that people are going to know that you're a black person. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And you're not going to be able to just declare yourself to be a white person, because nobody will accept that. I mean, it is true that sometimes she talked about, you know, in, back in her family, the, the certain of her relatives who were very, who could pass, just disappeared into the white society and never came back to the black society at a time when it was more segregated and, you know, more socially advantageous to be white. She talks about a certain great aunt who just crossed the line and just never came back, you know, because there she was gone. But uh, what am I saying with that? Oh, it's just a question of we are both, so what do we identify with? You know, we, we want to constantly concentrate on what's pulling us down, but why isn't it just as logical to constantly concentrate on what's lifting us up? Because we, this fear has been put into our minds that we'll go insane if we repress our energy. <laughs> you know, I mean, there really is like this enormous fear of repression. People are very nervous about repressing. But people are not nearly as nervous about uh, poisoning themselves with their darkness. They should be much more nervous about that than they are. We're much more nervous about not, about not relating to it than we are about relating to it. But relating to it is more of a killer. Are we, uh, do you think we're actually afraid of looking that way all the time? Mm-hmm. Because it's more challenging. That be the oh, it, it's tiring to always be good. Because there is this tension. I mean, this is, you know, Freud is correct. There is this tension. There's this tension between our aspirations and our um, reality and the, the instructions that too many psychologists gives you is to break the tension. You just collapse downward. But, of course, the only way we'll ever actually be happy is to break the suction, the downward pulling suction, and pull our energy up. And that's when our freedom comes, is when we take all the energy from our chakras and, and harmonize it with the spiritual eye. But what is this about? This is about greater awareness, greater energy, and greater consciousness. And we are um, safer in our littleness. This is the known misery. It, takes, it just takes more. We, you know, we all know instinctively, too. This is why I was saying sometimes people go mad. We know what we're getting into. There's no turning back. That's you bet that's Maya. That's why Maya is such a great concept. She's the magician. She just casts this spell over us, and we have this very strange idea that the smaller and more contracted we are, the happier we are. That's really dumb. But, but we're very persuaded of it, and things like this don't help any. You know, this just doesn't help to be constantly affirming and I mean, our whole culture just affirms it. It's just so, you know, uh, clothes and makeup and hair and uh, bodies and, you know, sex and 
sensuality and food and stimulation and just anything but calm and quiet. Anything but calm and quiet. Anandi placed it once when she was, you know, you go into the restaurant and there's music, you go into the bathroom of the restaurant and there's different music and just everywhere you go, you go now at the airport where I go to see my, where my family lives, they have music piped into the outdoor bus stops where you wait for the rental car buses, buses to come. I mean, I, when I, it was a new airport, I just want to take a BB gun and shoot those speakers. It was just, I could hardly stand it. I mean, we're outside and they're, they just, as Anandi said, it's just you must be careful to never be alone with your thoughts for one moment. Really. But what that does is that constantly just, and we've created like a whole world in which it's all designed to keep us out of our higher nature because nobody even knows it's there. And it's very, very sick and we have to just keep working on this. And the difficulty is I read a very interesting article saying that the the problem with speed is that once you start going a, a certain speed it doesn't feel fast so you have to go faster. And that's, and that's what you see happening. Once you're stimulated to a certain point, it no longer feels like stimulation. I was looking at the television and I saw that, you know, they, now they split the screen and they make sure that not only are you watching this person, but you're seeing something here and then you've got two bands going below it so that you can just make sure that, you're, that there's six things going on at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's because, because we, we, we just one looks dull. And, you know, just watch the speed at which things go, even in the movies and the loudness. It just goes faster and faster and faster and faster. You just So your mind never can stop. All of it's designed to just keep you out of your higher self. It's bad news. Because nobody knows. They think that's what will make us happier. It's really just, I mean, they're not calling it the id, but that's really what they're doing. They're trying to drag you down to the lesser self. So even if nobody's talking about Freud or free association on couches or anything like that, we're just, we've just totally bought the concept. We've bought the concept that we need to go down in order to be happy. And as you see what a horrible concept that is. But nobody, nobody around you is talking about it. That's not what they think. It's almost like Maya's winning, at least uh, the, one, the current battle. One for Maya, yeah. <laughs> but that's... But this is good times. That's the way the Lord set it up. We're we're in a, no, but we're in a transition yuga, and it's a mess. It's a mess. It's a, it's the time Swamiji, you know, says most of the time culture is like a cigar, and it's kind of like everything is just kind of like mediocre in the middle, and then there's a few a little bit that's good and a little bit that's bad. But in times like this, it forms itself into a dumbbell, <laughs> and the good is very dynamic. You know, this is what we're, we're, we have a first generation disciple of an avatar, and we're second generation disciples of an avatar, and that's pretty good. And there's a whole lot of that going on. And then you've just got the other side. It's just this stretched out dumbbell. And there's just, there's just not a lot. There's, there's no, not much middle ground. It's really all really horrible, or it's really completely different than that. And we're trying to straddle it a little bit by, by living here. When it was really horrible, real Kali Yuga, we were just hermits in the desert. When it was Kali Yuga descending, what was the point? You just gathered yourself up and you just said goodbye. That, like that story in, um, is it autobiography or what? Maybe it's in one of the books, but where some buried yogi was uncovered 
when they were excavating for a building, they discovered some, some yogi who God knows how long he'd been down there. And when he came out, he said, what yuga is this? <laughs> they said, Kali Yuga. He said, I'm not interested. <laughs> and then he just sat down and left his body. <laughs> really, like, who, who, yeah. I mean, Swami's talked about that saying, though, that he's not interested in being here, even in a higher yuga. He's just basically had it <laughs> with this plane of consciousness. I could say something like that and, and it would be sort of like, well, yeah, but when he says that, that's his reality. He's saying it because it's, for him it's true. He's saying because he didn't, doesn't have to come back. And then he'll say sort of, well, I would come back if I could help people. I said, sir, that's why you're here, that's why you're here now. And he said, yeah. <laughs> you know, he didn't have to be here this time either. He's not doing it for himself. But there you are. The rest of us are. But we're also here. We're here on purpose. We came to help Master. We might have had to come anyway. <laughs> we just put a good face on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we decided that we might as well just sort of do a good job while we were here. Make ourselves useful. Make ourselves useful. <laughs> well, and didn't we, most of us anyway, decide to reincarnate this time? I mean, because whatever. You know, maybe we could progress faster or something. Well, of course, we wouldn't be here otherwise. Be here. But there was a compulsive element in it. I mean, certainly, I'll speak for myself. I won't want to speak for anyone else here. I doubt if I had a choice. I, I don't think I came just to help others. <laughs> I don't mind helping others. It makes it a lot more fun. But I doubt if, if I had, hadn't wanted to do that, that I would still be in the astral world. I'd probably still be here. Huh. I had the funniest dream last night. Does anybody have any more serious questions? It was just the oddest dream. I dreamt that I had died, and I was in the astral world. It was a, it was a strong dream. I wouldn't call it super conscious, though. It was just an interesting dream. And, but, but I wasn't exactly in the astral world. I was just dead. And I had apparently just died rather suddenly, and I was totally cheerful. In fact, I was having a, just a marvelous time being dead. And uh, all these other dead Ananda people were with me, you know. <laughs> I mean, some of them were people that I knew, and, and others weren't, but I knew that we were all the dead Ananda people, so to speak. And then there was the other, the living Ananda people, and this is so silly. I, like, I hadn't really had to deal with going into the light yet or anything like that. I was just dead, and I was just going everywhere where all the living Ananda people were, were. and I was just running around, and, and it was sort of a game, because I would hang around until somebody became aware that I was there. They couldn't see me, but somebody could feel it. And then somebody would say, oh, Ash is here. And then I'd sort of run to the next one. <laughs> it, just, it, was such a, it was very vivid, but very silly. And Sean and David Gamow were having a, a meeting. And I just sort of very impishly sat on their papers, you know, just like right in the middle, <laughs> just to see if they would notice. And David Gamow just looked right at me. And he said, Asha, we're having a meeting like that. <laughs> Sean didn't know I was there, but David knew I was there. It was just... Really funny, but then the very serious part came. Well, two parts. Oh, and then there was, then all the Ananda people were having some big meeting, so the dead people didn't have anything to do. <laughs> because apparently we were all helping them all the time. We were all working with them all the time. And then this little girl came. It was just, it was such, the whole thing was so fun. This little girl came, and somehow I could tell she'd just been in an automobile accident, and that's why she was now in the astral world. I said, where, but where's your mother? 
And then I said, oh, she didn't make it, did she? (laughs) It was just what happened in the dream. And then the little girl and I looked at each other. We laughed and laughed because that's exactly what we meant. Oh, gosh, she didn't die. Too bad. (laughs) Maybe later. Maybe she'll be lucky later. So it was was just really, isn't it funny? Very, very vivid and marvelously fun. Yeah. But then a part that came that was more serious, you'll all appreciate what this was. Actually, it's moving to me when I say it. Somebody came to me and said, you get to work with Paula. You know Paula's our friend who died? And I, even in my dream, I burst into tears because I was just so thrilled that I was going to get to work with Paula. And it was exactly what happened when Paula died. The moment Paula died, I burst out crying. I didn't, I didn't expect to or anything. And it was sort of like her spirit... And that part of the dream was real. Something was real there. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I was going to get to be Paula's partner in the astral world, and I was so excited. Oh. And then I woke up. <laughs> so I, didn't, I never got to see her. Somebody came in, actually. Somebody came in with roses in their hair, and I thought it was Paula. And I rushed over, but it wasn't. It was somebody else, and I was very disappointed. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I don't know, I don't know if anything in it was true or not, but it had a lot of vivid energy, so... It was sort of fun to talk about, especially my running all around to see if people would notice me. <laughs> we all expect you to live a long time. <laughs> no, I don't. I have a few more years at least. Okay, any other questions or comments? Anything that's important? Yes, James. Applying the, the discipline of whether or not something works, I've just always thought it was amusing that human beings tend to congratulate themselves a great deal on being the most intelligent on the planet. And, and yet, if, as this book points out so vividly in each chapter, particularly in this one, uh, we can just get steeped in doing what doesn't work for such an extraordinarily long period of time and just never recognize it. And here we are, you know, so intelligent. Oh, yeah. yeah. Excuse me, I didn't want to interrupt you. Is that? But that's what Swami does say, because the ego has the capacity to develop unnatural appetites, whereas, whereas animals follow a more natural flow, but the ego can warp the natural system. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, he differentiates, too. Yeah. Animals and human beings are based on imagination. Primarily. Yeah, exactly. And what a magnificent curse it is, because we can accomplish remarkable things with our imagination, but we also use it to create desires that invariably just take us down down the wrong path and with the apparent inability to even recognize that we're going in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah. It's very strange, isn't it? That's Maya. But that's exactly what we're saying. That's Maya. Great yeah. <laughs> we always work with that, don't we? And the masters, that's what Tom was saying, the masters don't care. We think that God cares. He doesn't care at all. I often tell people, if you're praying and praying and praying for something and it either doesn't come or you don't get an answer, it's usually because God doesn't care. You know? He doesn't care what job you have or who you marry or where you live. And you just think it's so important, but it doesn't. It's not a divine question. A divine question is, how can I serve? How can I love? And sometimes then you'll know what job to take and where to live and who to marry. 
But, you, but you've asked, if you ask that question, you won't get an answer. If you ask, how can I be more in tune and how can I serve, then often the, the question that you're actually at, the question that prompted the question will, will also be answered. Because there is a divine answer to those questions. Yeah. They go year after year after year, and they never seem to get any better. This is because essentially what they're doing is just going from one room of the vine to another. Yeah. And it, it does, I've seen it so many times where the person never really gets any better, and they still think they're not good enough, so that they're still in the same place at the time, so they're not looking out yeah. of the left. Yeah. Or. And there's too much, well, because <laughs> once you start looking at what's wrong with you, it goes on for a really long time. You know, it just, where do you stop? And you stay focused on yourself. That's where we started when it's an attitude that doesn't work. I mean, the master, if you get in tune with a higher consciousness, it just, Swami talks about how Bernard, when master was at Mount Washington, who Bernard had so many physical problems. But as long as he stayed in tune with Master, he was fine. And as soon as he began to get out of tune, all his pro- all, even his physical body began to manifest all the problems again. So it's very... But to speak of your mind. Well, I think we've done it. Good night. <laughs>